Open your Bibles to Psalm 67. Psalm 67, that's page 589. Those pew Bibles in front of you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning. Psalm 67. Before we read together, I need to make a confession to you. My confession is that uh, I'm not all that happy with the reading schedule that we're working through this year together. Some people have mentioned it to me, and that is that it chops the Psalms up, and uh, that's right, and I don't like that either, and so I apologize for not looking more carefully at it before we adopted it. Um, I'll just tell you what I do, and that is that I read full Psalms. I can't stand reading four verses of one Psalm and stopping and then picking it up the next day, so I just read the whole thing. So I would encourage you to to perhaps adopt that if the the way that the reading is broken up this year is troublesome to you. Psalm 67 is a great psalm. It's a, it's a psalm of request where the people request that God would show himself gracious to them so that his, his glory might be known throughout the earth. Psalm 67 is all about the glory of God being on display throughout his created universe. God, be gracious to us and bless us. Cause His face to shine upon us. That Your way may be known on the earth. Your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For You will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we want to join our hearts and minds, voices with the psalmist who cries out, that Your glory might be known universally. That the worship of the one true God would be that which fills the earth. And our Father, we sense that same desire, that same passion within our own hearts. Where Lord God, right now we are all too aware of the fact that the true worship of the one true God is indeed not universally known that there are millions and millions of people locked in darkness, following after the futility of their own hearts and minds, foolishly seeking to pursue that which is not true or real and that which in the end will leave them wanting. Lord God, we long for a time when Your name would not be used as a curse to punctuate the speech of ignorant people but would be manifest as Your glory from one end of this earth to another. We pray for a time when unrighteousness would no longer prevail, when sickness would no longer afflict, when poverty and hunger would no longer devastate people by the millions, when war would no longer consume the energy, the ingenuity, and the the passion and the finances of nations. Lord God, we long for the time when righteousness prevails, 
We long for the time when Your name is known from one end of this earth to another. We long for the time, Lord Jesus, when You will return to establish Your kingdom. When You will put down Your enemies, those that would rise up against You, those that would seek to mock You, those that would fail to give You the worship You deserve and You would establish Your kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and prosperity and that all the earth would worship our God. We pray, our Father, in this time now that if we have gathered here, that it would be but a mere down payment, a mere installment upon that great and glorious time. For we have been created to worship You. We have been redeemed from sin by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on our behalf that we might now give You the true worship You deserve. May You guide and direct and lead us in this hour together. Unify our hearts and minds around the truth of Your Scriptures that we could sing and pray and give glory to Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Open your Bibles to First uh, Timothy chapter three this morning. First Timothy chapter three. If you're using one of those pew Bibles this morning. It's page eleven eighty seven. First Timothy three, page eleven eighty seven. You know, some sermons are exhortive. Some are more instructive. I suppose uh, this morning is maybe a little more instructive than exhortive, but I want to speak with you this morning and really for the next couple of Sundays about uh, one of the most misunderstood group of individuals, I think, in the church today. I want to talk to you about uh, the biblical deacon. I want to talk to you about deacons. There are a lot of confusion in the church of Jesus Christ about deacons. Who are they and what are they all about? Alexander Strock, in his very fine book called The Minister of Mercy, The New Testament Deacon, identifies for us a couple of the more common distortions with regard to the New Testament Deacon. Listen to what he says. He says, Some churches treat the deacons as ruling executives. They act more like corporation executives or corporate executives than ministering servants. In direct contradiction to the explicit teaching of the New Testament and the very meaning of the name deacon, deacons have been made the governing officials of the church. Even more troublesome is the fact that deacons are often placed into a competitive role with the shepherds of the local church. This practice is a proven formula for prolonged church warfare. So, according to Strzok, one of the common distortions of the ministry of the New Testament deacon is that of a ruling executive. Another one that he notes is what he calls building and property managers. Listen again as I quote him. He says, quote, While some churches wrongly elevate deacons to the position of executive board members, Others mistakenly reduce deacons to, to building managers, glorified church janitors, or sanctified groundskeepers. 
In response to this position, we must ask ourselves, listen to this, why would God demand deacons undergo public examination like the pastors of the church if all deacons do is wax floors and mow lawns? Anyone in the church or even people outside the church can do these types of jobs. Very insightful. So if deacons are not ruling executives, nor are they glorified groundskeepers, then who are they? And what is their biblical role? Well, before we can probably answer that question with regard to roles and responsibilities, we need to spend some time here in 1 Timothy 3 and deal with the issue of character. Deal with the issues of character that the Apostle Paul lays out for us here in 1 Timothy 3 with regard to the selection process of those who are qualified biblically to be deacons. Who is qualified to be a deacon? That's the question we want to ask and attempt to answer this morning. Who is qualified to be a deacon? And we're going to be looking at verses 8 and following together this morning. And in this section, we're going to see three areas in which a man's character must be evident. Three areas in which a man's character must be evident in order to qualify for this significant place of leadership within the local church let me just begin in verse one and we'll get a running start at this it is a trustworthy statement paul says if any man aspires to the office of overseer it is a fine work he desires to do an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife temperate prudent respectable hospitable able to teach Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. These are the requirements for elders. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There are three areas of examination here with regard to a man's character that qualify him for the office of deacon that we want to look at this morning in this section verses 8 really and through 12 i've given them to you in your handout so you can follow along if you'd like to their character must be evident first in their person a deacon's character must be evident in their person beyond that it must be evident in their partner and finally if you'll permit me the alliteration it must be evident in their palace Okay, so in their person, in their partner, and a man's home is his castle, so in their palace.
palace. All right. So let's just begin and, and talk about this word deacon for a moment. Deacon is one of those Bible words that come to us uh, from the Greek without really translation. It comes over to us and, and we use the word deacon, but, but really that is not a translation of the Greek word. The word really means servant or minister. That would be a translation. The word deacon means servant or minister. And the word is used, by the way, uh, diakonos, it is used very widely, the, the whole word group associated with that throughout the New Testament in many different ways. And so let me just give you a little of that color. You can jot these down and check them on your own. And I think it will help to flesh out what it is we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 3.5, don't even turn there, just sketch it down if you want to. But the term is used of, of uh, Paul and Apollos. They are called servants. They are called diakonos. It's used over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. And there it's used to describe the work of the gospel itself. The very work of the gospel is it's, uh, spoken of using this word group. Paul says his own work, Romans eleven thirteen, is that of a servant or minister. It's used in Romans fifteen thirty one to speak of charitable aid. So the whole issue of charity within the church falls within this word group. Romans twelve seven. it's a task of ministry within the congregation. Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, it's spoken of as a task for church leaders. And maybe most significantly, Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, uses the same thing. He says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, right? But to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So it is very much woven into the fabric of biblical Christianity. Christ himself referring to himself as a deacon, as a servant. But it has more than just this broad general sense of ministry or service. There is a, there is a more uh, technical sense to it. And that is what arises here in this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I think what has happened is, or what did happen, I should say, is that, is that the function of service became so closely related to certain men that, that it kind of morphed and became an official title within the church. Just like overseer, spoken here in verse 1, you see that, chapter 3. Just like overseer is both a designation of the office of elder and a description of an elder's responsibility, so deacon is both a, a job description and a title. Both a job description and a title. Now it's interesting, by the way, and we're just accumulating some observations here on the text. It's interesting that over in Titus, right, Titus 1, chapter 1, which gives a, a parallel list of the requirements of elders, makes no mention of deacons. There is no parallel list of requirements for deacons given over in Titus chapter 1. We don't know exactly why that is, but I can only suppose for you, and I'm willing to do that this morning. And my supposition is, is that the, that the churches there in Crete that Paul left Titus to, to establish were very young and immature churches. And therefore, because they were young and immature and probably small in size, that the need for an official office of deacon had not yet arisen. Whereas the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is ministering for Paul, is a church that's at least 10 years old. 
This church has grown and has matured and has established itself. And therefore, there seems to be a need now for this official uh, uh, leadership position within the church called deacon. Cannot prove it from the text, but that seems to me to be the, a, a good understanding, a good explanation why Titus has no requirements of deacon. First Timothy 3 does. All right, so this is the ministry of the deacon. Um, beyond that, let's just kind of dive into the text here. And, and notice in verse 8, Paul says, likewise. You see that? Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. What he is doing here is he is tying this whole section together. If you look at your text closely, hopefully you'll see must be is in italics in your Bible. And the reason it is is because it's not there in the original manuscript. The verb is, is borrowed from verse 2 and brought down in the context. So whereas in verse 2, an elder then must be above reproach, likewise, down in verse 8, deacons must be men of dignity. Do you see that? This is a very tight context going on here. And Paul is just flowing one office into the next. And he's, he's carrying this along. And so he's saying deacons must be these men of dignity, just like elders must be men above reproach. And that gives us a clue to understanding exactly what he's talking about here when he says men of dignity, verse 8. It is an umbrella term. It is an umbrella term. Just like up in verse 2, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. You remember we said that that was a big umbrella term that was then defined underneath it with all of these character qualities. Here for deacons, same thing is going on. A deacon, likewise, must be men of dignity. That's your umbrella. A deacon must be a man of dignity. And then the Apostle Paul will begin to explain what it means to be a man of dignity. He will begin to give these characteristics that will that will. Uh, flesh this out and he actually gives four of them for us here in the text all right four characteristics that flesh out what it means to be men of dignity verse eight again the first one not double tongued do you see it not double tongued what that means is it's a reference to uh, to the sincerity of one's speech all right deacons are not to be men who are insincere in their speech Saying one thing to one person and another thing to somebody else. That's the concept. Deceitful in their communications. Deacons are not to be deceitful in the way they communicate. They are to communicate openly and clearly with people. What they say is what they mean. What you understand them to say is what they mean. Okay, so their speech is the first area where they must be men of dignity. Beyond that, number two... There in verse 8 again is they cannot be addicted to much wine. Cannot be addicted to much wine. The, the notion here is they have to be balanced. They have to be mature. They have to be uh, in their use of, of substances that can deaden the thinking. That can anesthetize the mind. Okay, Whether it be wine or some other substance that could tend to deaden one's thinking. Deacons cannot be men who are habitually Addicted to such things. They cannot be men. Let's put it in the vernacular. They cannot be men that live on Vicodins. Okay. They cannot be men who have, who have somehow allowed their lives to be, to be uh, co-opted by chemicals coming in from the outside that deaden the pain, deaden the senses. Beyond that, number three, right? They may not be fond of sordid gain, the text says. Fond of sordid gain. This has a parallel back up in verse 3 where it says, For elders, they must be free from the love of money. 
Deacons may not be fond of sordid gain. Elders may not be fond of, or, or uh, free, must be free from the love of money. The idea here being communicated is, is that deacons may not uh, do their ministry in such a way that they, that they do it for the paycheck. It's not about the paycheck. They should not use their position of influence, and they have tremendous position of influence, to, to uh, gain personally from the ministry. Deacons are not to use their position for personal financial gain. And that will become more clear next week as we look at the ministry of the deacon itself. Okay, so not, they cannot be fond of sordid gain. They cannot be personally, financially benefiting from the ministry that God has called them to. Beyond that, verse 9, the fourth characteristic that explains what it means to be men of dignity is they must... Beholding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That means there must be no contradiction between their outward profession and their inward spiritual lives. What you see on the outside, it must be what it is on the inside. What they're like in private is, is what they're to be like in public, or probably said better the other way. What they look like in public is what they're to be like in private. Okay, not one thing for one audience and something else for another. They cannot have a life that is, that is empty, a profession only, just words. They've got to have actions that support the words. Now, when it talks about the conscience here, again, right, verse 9, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That is a reference, biblically, to the, to the moral self-consciousness that a person has implanted in them by God. Romans chapter 2, verse 15, all people created in the image of God, and that's poorly said. All people are created in the image of God. Let's just clear that up. And so, therefore, all people have a conscience, and it is imparted to them by their Creator. It is the conscience, it is the, by means of the conscience, that God, through His Holy Spirit, examines the heart. It is what He uses to sift us on the inside. Now, the conscience can be used for good, it can be used for evil, it can be seared, it can be hardened, okay? It can be made relatively ineffective through uh, repetitive and hard-hearted sin. But, but what's going on here, what he's talking about, is that the, the conscience of a deacon as a mature man of Christ, a man of dignity, is a conscience that has been informed by the Word of God and it is therefore usable by the Word of God through His Holy Spirit to search His heart. To search His heart. And to seek him out on the inside, that he will live in conformity to the ethical demands that his profession of faith requires. No hypocrisy. That's what we're talking about. No hypocrisy, okay? To be a man of dignity is to be a man who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. A man who does not live in hypocrisy. What he says he believes is what works out in his life. This is, the, this is the character of a deacon that must be evident in his person. Man of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Notice it says the faith. You see it? Definite article, the faith. It's not talking about a profession of faith leading unto salvation. It's talking about the body of doctrine that makes up the Christian faith. Okay, definite article, the faith. Not a personal relationship. That's not what he's talking about. Paul's talking about that a deacon must be a man who understands the Christian faith and all of the related doctrines to the Christian faith. 
Now, there is no requirement here for teaching, as you well know. Whereas an elder, verse 2, has to be able to teach. There is a teaching requirement for elders. There is not a teaching requirement for deacons. But that doesn't mean deacons can be spiritual lightweights. Okay? Deacons are to be men who know the Word of God. Men who give themselves to the Word of God. Men whom the Word of God has formed and shaped their character. Men for whom what you see is what you get. Their character must be evident in their person. Second, second, their character must be evident in their partner. Their character must be evident in their partner. Verse 11. We're going to skip over verse 10. We'll come back to that in another sermon. Okay, so jump down to verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate Faithful in all things. This launches us into a, an area of dispute or disagreement within the, within the uh, evangelical church with regard to the meaning of Paul's statement here in verse 11. And so we're going to take a little time and we're going to try to unpack it. Okay? What is he talking about here? What is he talking about? So you're going to have to follow me a little bit. All right? So sit up. Pay attention. Okay? I know it's warm, but pay attention here and let me walk you through this. And hopefully we can walk away together with an understanding of what's going on here. It begins first with just understanding the Greek word gune or gunikos. Okay, gune, singular, gunikos, plural, which uh, can legitimately be translated either uh, a woman or women or wife or wives. Okay, singular would be woman or wife, plural would be women or wives. There is one Greek word, and the context determines how it is translated. There are not two Greek words, one meaning woman and another meaning wife. Okay, and that is an important thing to keep in your mind. I will emphasize it again here as we move through this. So you can't just lexically say, well, what does the word mean in the Greek? Well, the word means, in the Greek, it means wise, it means women or woman. It is context that will determine. Now, it is clear in the context here that this person, this, the, these women, verse 11, are being distinguished from and compared to the deacons by the same adverb that's used in verse 8. Likewise, do you see it? It's used, verse 11, likewise. Deacons, verse 8, likewise. So there is, a, again, a tight context here. The Apostle Paul is working through. He's laid out the characteristics of an elder. Now he's talking about the characteristics of deacons. Now, verse 11, he's introducing a third group. He's introducing a third group, and he said, this third group, likewise, just like those who have gone before, have to meet certain qualifications. It's also clear, beloved, from the context here, uh, explicitly, that deacons are men. All right, verse 12, right? Let deacons be what? Husbands of only one wife. So deacons are men. Deacons are men. But who are the gunikos? That is the interpretive issue that we have to figure out together. Now, notice they're introduced, as I say, in a parallel way to the deacons. And they are given qualifications, verse 11, right? Must be dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. They are given their own set of qualifications. And it is a comparable set of qualifications to that of the deacons previously mentioned. So the question is, who are they and what is their involvement in the ministry of the deacon? Who are they and what is their involvement in this ministry of the deacon? Now, there are three basic possibilities. 
three basic possibilities of who these gunikos could be. The first is that they are deaconesses. The first possibility is that they are deaconesses, that they are comparable with but separate from the deacons. All right? If, if that's the interpretation that is taken, then you've got elders, you've got deacons, you've got deaconesses. All right? That is one possibility. Second possibility is that they are female assistants to the deacons. So you have elders, you have deacons, and you have this group of women called, that, are, that are assistants to the deacons. They are not deaconesses, but they are a group of, of, of women that assist the deacons. Some would refer that over to chapter 5, by the way, to the widows' roles in chapter 5, and would say that those widows in chapter 5 are what's being talked about here in chapter 3. So that's another possibility. The third possibility is that they are the wives of the deacons. They are the wives of the deacons. All right, so deaconesses, female assistants, or wives of the deacons. Three major possibilities. What's the right answer? How do we know? Well, we, we go, we are, we reason from what we do know to that which we don't know. Okay, this is, uh, this is how you work through an issue with the text. This is practicing hermeneutics, okay, big fancy word, talking about Bible interpretation and the rules of Bible interpretation. So we're going to do this together. We're going to have a mini hermeneutics class together. No certificates awarded at the end, sorry. You have to take the 10-week class at FIT if you want a certificate. But I'm going to, we're going to work together through the text, and I will show you how it is done. All right, so let's look at the first view, deaconesses. First view, deaconesses. This view has some difficulties. All views, by the way, have some difficulties. Let me give you the difficulties of this view, which lead us to believe that that is not the correct interpretation. Okay, We do not believe deaconesses is the correct interpretation. And here is the reasoning for it. The really kind of twofold reasoning. First, Paul uses an ambiguous word here, gunikos. All right, I told you the word can mean wife, it can mean woman. It is an ambiguous word, and Paul uses that. But he had available to him in the Greek language the ability to say deaconesses. He had that ability. Tas diakonus would be the Greek. He could have said that. And it would have been absolutely clear that he was talking about deaconesses. Yet he chose not to use that expression. So that means we cannot clearly say that was his intent. And in fact, I would go a little further than that and say that, that his decision not to use a vocabulary word that was available to him leads me to believe that's not what he's trying to communicate. Furthermore, if it is indeed deaconesses that are, that are spoken of here, then there's a kind of a breaking up of the context. Because notice down to verse 12 what happens, right? He picks up the, the discussion of deacons again. Do you see that? So it's deacons 8, 9, 10. Verse 11 is an interruption. Verse 12, back to deacons. If he's talking about deaconesses, it just seems to me that, that there was a better way to arrange the text rather than break it up. So we do not believe deaconesses is the best interpretation of this expression. Secondly, female assistance. Female assistance. Again, for this one, the, the view seems to, to flounder on the rocks uh, of the fact that Paul doesn't identify them as helpers or assistants. Again, he could have identified them that way. Instead, he uses the word gunikos, which can be wives or women. He uses, again, a word that could be wives or women instead of using a more specific term, helpers or assistants. Okay? 
Also, if they are the, uh, the female assistants, then why doesn't he give a marriage requirement for them? Now, some would answer it's because they're the widows of chapter 5. Well, maybe so. But in any case, he doesn't anywhere say they have to be widows. And he doesn't speak of their marital requirements, right? Verse 12, he says deacons have to be the husband of only one wife. Do you see it? So he's saying they have marital requirements. These gunakas, verse 11, have no marital requirements. It doesn't say that they're widows. They have to be widows. It doesn't say that they have to be properly married. There's just no mention of it at all. I find that unusual in a context in which the marriage requirement is laid out for deacons and elders. And that leads me to the third interpretation. So we don't think it's deaconesses. We don't think it's female assistants. We think it is wives of the deacons. We believe he's talking about the wives of the deacons. Verse 11. So let me just read it that way. Wives of deacons must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Okay? Now, why do we believe that it can be wives of deacons? Well, let me run through the evidence with you. First, and I've said this about five times already, and I'm going to say it a sixth time here, and that is that the word gune, gunakos, can mean wives and it can mean women. All right? So the word lexically fits. It's the right word to use. Beyond that, in the pastoral epistles, it is often translated wife or wives. In the general, broader context of both 1 Timothy and the other pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy and Titus, that's the way the word is translated many times. For example, right in this same context, verse 2, the husband of one wife. It's the same Greek word translated there, wives. Down to verse 12, let the deacons be husbands of only one wife. Same word, translated wife. No arguments on that. So in the context, in the very near context, and in the wider context of the pastoral epistles, the word is translated often as wife or wives. Beyond that is what I will call the flow of thought. The flow of thought. It works best in my judgment with the flow of thought. It breaks the context the least if you understand Paul to be talking about the wives of deacons. Then he's not introducing a third category of leadership within the church. Okay, If he's introducing a third category of leadership, it seems to break the flow of thought to be talking about one group of leaders, introduce a new group, and then go back to the first group. But if he's talking about the wives of the deacons, then there's a very nice flow of thought that runs through this passage. All right, deacons are to be men of dignity, right? With four characteristics. Verse 8, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, not fond of sordid gain, holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Skip over to verse 11. Their wives must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, they have to be husbands of only one wife, good managers of the children and their own households. And what you've got is a nice flow of context that says a deacon must meet these characteristics, both of his individual character and within his home. And within his home. We're looking at his marriage. We're looking at his parenting. We're looking at his his wife and what her character is like. And we are looking at his personal character. It all seems to flow nicely. All right. So based on on the uh, word, lexical usage of the word and the flow of thought, it seems to us that the wives of deacons is the best view available. Paul then, in verse 11, is merely adding further qualifications, further places of test or measurement 
of a deacon's character. Is a deacon's wife of sound moral character? That's the question. Is she of sound moral character? Right? I said that, that a deacon must meet the character requirements in his person and in his partner. She has to meet them too. As I said, look again. Verse 12, after dealing with the deacon's wife, he then moves right on into discussing his fidelity to her and his ability to lead inside his home with his own children. A very nice flow of context. Question. Question that's probably come to your mind. Why aren't elders' wives mentioned then? Then why doesn't the Apostle Paul mention the wives of elders? If he, if he mentions the wives of deacons, why not the wives of elders? Well, I think the answer lies in the difference in the ministry requirement of elders and deacons. I think there's your answer. It lies within the responsibilities of both elders and deacons. Elders are responsible to teach and to administer the church of Jesus Christ. They have an overall shepherding role that, is in, that manifests itself in teaching and in administration. Let your eyes glance back to chapter 2. Okay, remember, you know, we look at we look at the leaves and sometimes we forget to see the whole tree or the whole forest that surrounds the tree. Let your eyes go back to chapter two, verse twelve, where the apostle Paul, leading right into his discussion of the qualifications of the leadership of the church, says, I do not allow a woman to do what? What two things won't he allow her to do? Teach, right? And exercise authority over the man. That is, administrate the church. The two things that Paul says she's not eligible to do are the very two things that an elder has responsibility to do. Therefore, an elder's wife cannot help him in his main responsibilities within the church. What I'm saying, beloved, is there are no co-pastors. Okay, There are no co-pastors. Now, I know that's popular today. You'll look in the newspaper and you'll see first, you know, such and such a church, co-pastors, right? Husband and wife, they'll have their pictures. They'll call them co-pastors. I think it runs aground here on Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2 and chapter 3. So the reason I think Paul is not talking about the character of the elder's wives is because she does not share his ministry. Now, that doesn't mean an elder's wife can be anything, right? Doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Of course it matters. This is a tight context. The Apostle Paul wants you to read it as such. And clearly the character qualities that are required of a deacon's wife at a minimum would have to be required of an elder's wife too. It's just he does not specifically lay it out because she does not share his ministry. Not in the same sense. Now, for a deacon with a ministry of service within the church, there are no prohibitions in the New Testament that cut that off. There are no explicit statements of the Apostle Paul that says women cannot join in that ministry. And so I think that very much what's going on here is that the ministry of the New Testament deacon is a husband-wife ministry. It is a husband and wife ministry. It is something they can do together and can enter into together in a very close way. So we think we're talking about deacons' wives here, verse 11. So if you'll grant me that, let's find out what deacons' wives have to be like. Okay, four characteristics of deacons' wives. Verse 11, likewise, they have to be dignified. Dignified, that is serious in their behavior. They have to elicit the respect of other people. That's the the notion, okay? Same requirement of their husbands. 
verse 8. Overarching umbrella kind of term. They have to solicit respect. They have to be respected within the congregation. Deacons wise. Secondly, not malicious gossips. Verse 11. Do you see that? Not malicious gossips. Diabolus in the Greek, from which we get the English word what? Devil. Okay? They must not be devil speakers. They must not be devil speakers. What is the, what is the devil? What is Satan known for? He is known to be a slanderer. He is known to be a liar. He is known to be one who seeks to destroy with his words. And therefore, if a deacon's wife is a malicious gossip, if she is one whose mouth runs off in hurtful ways, there is no end to the problem that can be caused within the church. By virtue of her ministry, joint ministry shared with her husband, she is going to become aware of many things within the congregation that if they are not properly kept in check, that if she has loose lips, then what will happen is there will be, there will be division within the church, there will be hatred within the church, there will be suspicion, there will be a wounding of the body of Christ. So she must not be a malicious gossip. People gossip, by the way, for all kinds of reasons. There are many reasons that people gossip. Some people are just confused in their judgment. I suppose the best case for a gossip, I guess, is they're confused in their judgment. They don't understand what they're doing. Okay, so we'll give them the benefit of the doubt there. But others, it's they just have an uncontrollable mouth. They lack self-control. They hear something and they immediately have to pass it on, right? Somebody tells you a secret and, and says, don't tell anybody. You hang up the phone. The first thing you do is what five people can I call to pray with me about this secret that I'm not supposed to pass on, right? That is how gossip works. Sometimes it's just unbridled passion or jealousy, anger, bitterness. All of these things can cause a person to be a devil with their tongue. And we're not just talking about women here, by the way. Men are good gossipers, too. Okay? Men are, there's no corner on the market here based on your gender. Gossip is a sin. It is a serious sin. It wounds the body of Jesus Christ. And we are all susceptible to it. Every single one of us. If we do not guard our tongue, we will hurt the work of Jesus Christ. Okay? If you're not sure, don't say anything. Do not say anything. In fact, if you, you know, the old uh, wisdom learning growing up, if you don't have a good thing to say, then what? Don't say anything at all. All right? And by the way, passing on prayer requests is just very fertile ground for gossip. That is one of the reasons, by the way, we do not have a prayer chain. In this church, some people come in and say, can you activate your prayer chain? We do not have a prayer chain. And the reason we do not have a prayer chain is because all too often it becomes a gossip chain. All right. There are ways to activate Christians to pray for you. One of those is through your adult fellowship groups on Sunday mornings. Okay. If you need people to pray for you, become attached to an adult fellowship class and they will pray for you. Beyond that, in the fall, when we start the Oikos groups, the home care groups, get involved there. They will pray for you. But the idea of calling the church office, telling the secretary something, who will then turn around and call somebody else, who will call somebody else, who will call somebody else. It doesn't take much imagination to figure out what happens when you go down that line. Okay, so not malicious gossips. You know, in fact, gossip is so serious. Listen to me. Gossip is so serious that Paul tells Titus in chapter 3, verse 10, you are to reject a factious man after the first and second warning. One who participates in gossip is to be warned, according to Paul, once and then twice. And if they do not cease, they are to be excommunicated.
communicated that they are to be cast out of the fellowship for the damage that they will do. Gossip is a very serious sin. Beyond that, they have to be temperate. All right, you see that? Verse 11, they must be temperate. The idea is sobriety, self-control, judgment, clear-headed, those kinds of things. The wife of a deacon working alongside her husband. She has to be balanced. She has to be clear-headed. She has to be able to give sound counsel to her husband, particularly in the, when they deal with the issues surrounding hurting or needy people. Okay, Particularly surrounding the issues of hurting and needy people. Fourth, faithful in all things. The idea here is loyalty, trustworthiness, reliability. That's what's going on. The wife of a deacon, she must be a faithful person in her relationships. That's within her home. That's within the church. That's within the community. She is someone who can be trusted. Someone to whom that a person would go and bear some of the deepest and darkest hurts of their lives. And she must be trustworthy to receive such information and reliably pass it on to her husband. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. Character of deacons has to be evident in their person. It has to be evident in their partner. And lastly, it has to be evident in their palace. Verse 12, right? Let deacons be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and their own household. Now, we have worked at some detail on this expression here of husbands of one wife. And I don't want to re, you know, redo all of that. There are, we believe the most, the best interpretation of this expression which is uh, literally a one-woman man, is to speak of marital fidelity. We are talking about marital fidelity, not measured in some ancient past, but right now, today, is he a man who has eyes only for his wife? Is his heart completely enamored with her? Is, she, is he fully taken with her? That's what's being communicated here. It shifts the emphasis from an event in a man's past to the quality and character of his life right now, at the moment of measurement. If you would like to see or hear that fully developed, then I would just direct you back to the CD or it's on probably on the website and you can go back and you can trace those arguments. All right. So I do not, we do not believe this is talking about a man's marital uh, status with regard to divorce or any of those kinds of things. We're just talking about where is the guy right now at the moment he's being considered to be a deacon. Are his eyes only for her? Has she captivated his heart? It emphasizes his character. That's what we're talking about here. The man's character. Is he a one-woman man? Beyond that, is he a good manager of his children? A good manager of his children. We developed this one for you too. Prohistemi in the Greek, it means pro before, stemi uh, to stand. Okay, to stand before. Prohistemi. How well does he stand before his children? How well does he stand before? Some translate it rule, some translate it as it does here, manage. But we don't, we don't like those translations. And the reason we don't like them is they have a lot of cultural baggage 
attached to them. When you talk about how well does a man rule his home, then the first thing you come off with is some sort of cultural picture of, you know, Queen Elizabeth or Napoleon or, you know, some ruler of his home, right? And then that gives you all the wrong picture. If you talk about manage, if I talk about a manager, most of you form a mental picture of a CEO, Okay, and a husband is not a CEO of his home, nor is he the king of his castle, even though I used that expression earlier. Okay, so I'm repenting even in the same sermon of that expression. Okay, so he is neither king nor is he CEO. He is one who stands well before his family. The idea of standing before your family has the idea of protection, right, and leadership, When we lead, we lead from the front, presumably. Okay, it's hard to lead from the back. You lead from the front. When you are protecting, you're out in front, right? Who will be first to get hit with the attacks on the family? It should be the man standing in front of his family. It also carries with it the idea of, of they have examined his life, his own children, his own wife, his own family, has seen his life in various contexts, and he stands well. He stands well. What you see is what you get. I remind you again, the family of God is just that, a family. It is a very common metaphor in the New Testament that we are a family. Therefore, it is, it is very important and, and very um, necessary to examine a man's family relationships in order to know how well he will do in the larger family called Foothill Bible Church. So a husband must be a one-woman man. He must be one who stands well before his children and his own household. And by the way, when it says household, it and certainly in the first century would include all his, his employed help. Okay, It would include those that would live within his household if he had any means, financial means at all. He would have, he would have servants okay, and he would have helpers. Now, we don't, at least none of you that I'm aware of, have servants okay, in your house. So... But I think there is still an application here, and that is, how do you treat the people that come into your house to help you? Okay, if you stand well in your home, how good a job do you do with the maid, ladies, who comes to to clean for you? How do you treat her? How do you do with the plumber that shows up? How do you do with the person who mows your lawns? Do Do you treat them poorly, or do you treat them well? Do you stand well before them? When they look at you, do they see your Christianity or do they see just another customer who's got nothing but, but moaning and groaning because they don't like the way I do my work? Okay, it's significant. How you behave at home speaks volumes about who you are. Three non-negotiable areas. Three non-negotiable areas of a man's character must be evident in their person, must be evident in their partner, it must be evident in in their palace. The New Testament deacon is to be a man of sterling character. He's to be a man of sterling character in order to qualify for the tremendous responsibilities that he will carry as a leader in the church of God. Next week, we're going to ask and answer the question, what do deacons do? Now we know who they are. Now we know the lofty requirements for them It begs the question, well, what is it they do? Next week, we'll look at that, okay? If you're with us the first time this morning, if you are, I want to add my welcome to that which has gone before. We really appreciate the fact that you have come out to be with us this morning to join in the worship of our God.
We have been looking at this passage here in 1 Timothy, and this is, I think, the 12th or 13th sermon in a series that we've been doing on the leadership of the church because we think it's so critical that God's church be led in accordance with the standards laid out in God's Word. But I also want to speak to you this morning for just a moment or two, and I'd be remiss if I didn't do this, about your own spiritual condition with God. You're with us this morning. I, I don't know you well. Met a few of you and a few more I hope to meet after. But I'm concerned about where you stand with God. You see, the Scripture tells us very clearly it is appointed on a man that wants to die and then the judgment. We all have a date with destiny. There is nothing more certain for those born into this world that they're going to go back out again. They're going to die. Whether you're young or whether you're old, there is a day appointed for you. The question that I want to really ask you to think about is, are you ready? Are you ready for the divine appointment? This is not an appointment, by the way, uh, beloved, that you can postpone. It's not like the dentist, where if you get cold feet, you call him up and say, yeah, just move the appointment six more weeks, right? Or you get a better offer and you want to go to Disneyland and so you, you call and you move your doctor's appointment. We're not talking about that kind of an appointment. You see, because you didn't make the appointment with God. God made the appointment with you. God keeps His appointments. And beyond that, He hasn't revealed to you what it is. He hasn't told you how long you're going to live. You don't know. You have no idea. You may live another 50, 60 years. Your life may be taken from you tonight. There's a weightiness to life. Don't go through life happy-go-lucky, drowning your sorrows, putting off your miseries, putting the iPod in your ears so you never have to be alone with yourself. Think seriously. There is an appointment that you have with your Creator. He will call you to account. And when He calls you to account, unless you are found in Jesus Christ, as the Bible says, unless you have personally appropriated by faith the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross on your behalf, you will be weighed and found wanting. It is appointed unto men to die once. After this comes the judgment. Don't be found at the judgment seat without Jesus Christ. When we finish here this morning, we've got a little bit more. But when we finish over here by this lighted cross, there'll be some folks that'll be happy to talk with you. They'll be happy to discuss anything we've talked about in here this morning. Songs we've sung. Why do we do what we do? How do I join? You know, maybe you're interested in membership. Maybe after last week's baptisms, you're interested in, in uh, also making public your faith in the waters of baptism. You need to talk about that. Maybe you just want to know more about how can I know for sure that when I die, I will go to be with God in heaven. You come. You ask these questions. They'll be more than happy to open the Word of God, the only source of eternal truth, and to show you how these things can be solved. Let's pray. Well, our Father, we uh, somewhat academically this morning 
we unpack this section of the pastoral epistles. And Lord, we, we did so, of course, because we want, to, we want to come in conformity with your word. We do not want to be part of a church that we've made up ourselves, some kind of club. We want your blessing, and we know your blessing flows when we are in alignment with your will. Lord God, I pray this morning for the leadership of this church, elders and deacons, their wives, those that are in other positions of leadership who give of themselves so sacrificially and oftentimes without any outward observation. Lord God, I pray that you would encourage them this morning in the task that lies before them. Help them to find great joy in their ministry. And Lord, would you continue to put it into the hearts of men to make the tremendous sacrifice necessary, to reorder the priorities of their own lives in order that they might be able to serve in such a way. May you work in the young men, my Father, to preserve their character. Let them not dash themselves upon the rocks of immorality that is so around us in our culture to become so broken that they render themselves useless at a later age. Lord God, work in, through, and among your people for your name's sake. For it is indeed your purpose that all the world would worship. Help us to fulfill that purpose. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.